You are listening to Go Doc Yourself, your weekly documentary book club. Listen in while we two errands dissect our most recent documentary find. Sometimes weird, sometimes mainstream, but always entertaining. Grab a cup of coffee and let's clutch. Hi, and welcome to Go Doc Yourself. I'm Erin McCart. And I'm Erin McCourt. Welcome back this week. As we tell you a story, let me rephrase that. We tell you someone else's story that they already told, um, but it's well known. And so hopefully you guys know a little bit about it already, because we're going to cover the Netflix remastered Devil at the Crossroads. This came out in 2019. It's only 48 minutes long. So we'll try to keep this episode to less than 48 minutes, guys. And directed by Brian Oaks. So all I knew was I knew the story of the crossroads and I knew that he was supposed to be like the most amazing guitar player and the best blues player ever and kind of became the, the blues that everything grew from, right? There was blues before him and then there was blues after him and he kind of influenced everything after him. Right. He changed everything, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a big deal. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's really interesting because there's a lot of mystery surrounding him. There's very little known about his life. And I thought it was wild that there's only two known photographs of him. Right. And no like video footage at all. And this is early. Like he died in 1938. So he was born in what, 1911, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. And so, yes, it's early days for anything like that. But as we learned in Descendant, it was possible because we have video of, of Cudgel Lewis from around that time frame. So it's out there, but not of him. Right. You just had to want to get photographed and videoed. It wasn't like everybody just had it on their phone or a street corner or whatever. You just weren't being recorded all the time like we are now. So it seems foreign. But yeah, so kind of the narrator throughout this is a guy named... Bruce Conforth, who's an author, a historian, and a picker himself. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of found Robert Johnson and he spent the last 50 years trying to understand who he was and what he was all about and where he came from and kind of put a little light on his story. Because I think when a lot of people found him, at least people that are alive now, <laughs> Mm-hmm. It was all legend. Like we didn't know anything. Right. So I think it's interesting when people do their own like kind of background ground work to, to try to find their idols. I always think that that's an interesting thing to have done. Yeah. Well, I like one of the other people. So they have a lot of people talking in this people, you know, people you don't know um, a lot of musicians talking, but one of the people they have is Steven Johnson, who's actually Robert Johnson's grandson. And they love that. And they show him picking and singing. And he's yeah. Really, oh, yeah. really good as well. Yeah. But he said he found out Robert Johnson was his grandfather when he was 15 years old. Can you imagine? I mean, I would take that right to school and just spread that. Listen to how cool I am, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really interesting, though, because I think at the time he was not really revered because he played the devil's music. And I thought that was so interesting because it took a long time for his genius to really be understood and appreciated. He sort of was almost shunned for, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of being outside of um, 
what the religious people would accept. You know, we've talked a lot about gospel music was where everybody was comfortable and anything really outside of that was not great. Well, but this is the South too. So if you think a lot of Southern Baptists, a lot of them don't allow music or dancing at all. I don't know where that line is drawn, where they do and they don't, but I, I know some churches are like, listen, that's all the devil's music. There will be no fun <laughs> yes. here. And I think, I think because they're threatened by it more than anything, like here are people who are enjoying life over here and taking them away from church. And so that they see as competition. And so that's one way to eliminate it. Right. Right. It's a gateway to sin, right? Mm-hmm. Card playing, drinking, mm. dancing, grinding all up on each other. Like that's just going to lead straight to hail. hail. <laughs> and yeah, mm-hmm. that's where we're at. Right. Absolutely. There's a guy named Keb Moe. Mm-hmm. There's some great ass names in here. Let me be honest. Yep. There's another musician that discusses upon hearing Robert Johnson, he knew what music was. It kind of came around and he was like, yep, that's it. So he also was influenced to read everything that he could find. So this guy speaks quite a bit throughout the documentary. We have a guy named Adam Gusso, who is a professor of Southern studies, and he's also a musician. So I guess you can't like Robert Johnson without being a musician yourself. And also every time they talk about him, it's never Robert or RJ or Bobby or whatever. It's Robert Johnson. Every time. It's always Robert Johnson. <laughs> like, I don't know. But you know what? Every time I wrote it in my notes, it was Robert Johnson as well. So I think it's fine. I finally went with RJ because my hand was cramping <laughs> up. So, but yeah, trying to discuss, you know, what's his state of mind? Uh, there's a, So there's a lot of speculation because, again, there's not a lot known about him. So everybody's kind of digging through the histories to find anything out about this guy, like a little nugget. Mm-hmm. It's pretty entertaining to watch them. And they talk about it wasn't until 1967, so almost 30 years after his death, that his mm-hmm. death certificate was discovered. So that's when they're able to start kind of digging into who he was. They found out who his parents were, where he was born, and just some other information they were able to dig into census records and that. And that's where they mm-hmm. could begin. And Stephen Johnson starts to tell us a story, right? And Bruce chimes in mm-hmm. and helps. It kind of goes back and forth. But he says, Robert Johnson was born in Hazelhurst, Mississippi on May 8th, 1911. This is really bizarre. He said his mother was Julia Dodds. She was married to Charles Dodds. Charles was a wealthy carpenter and farmer, but shockingly, some white people resented his success and he was forced to flee to Memphis to escape a lynch mob. Now, the interesting part is Charles Dodd had nothing to do with Robert Johnson. She was married to him before Robert was conceived, I believe. So, Mm -hmm. okay. But later on, he's referred to as a stepfather. And I'm like, I don't think that works that way. Yeah, it's it's somewhat unclear, but again, none of the story is firsthand. You're just kind of picking up pieces from here and there. I did like the, there's a part that Bruce was talking about when he's trying to put together some of this. He's going to Hazelhurst. He's like, I wrote accosting people on their porches because he's like just <laughs> driving around trying to find anybody who knew. So I think maybe that's kind of where some of those weird little bits get confused Mm -hmm. because I mean, people are just telling the story as they knew it at the time. Right. Uh, Julia was then destitute. So she took up with a local lumber camp worker who would become Robert's biological father. 
Sure. And also, please remember, there weren't a lot of options for women. If she's destitute, it's not like she can just go find a great paying job somewhere. Right. I mean, she may not have had a lot of choices yet to be left with children and all that shit. So absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Women couldn't possibly take care of themselves back then, unfortunately. Right. And I think for black women in the South, probably not, you know, even it's even worse. Right. So yeah. yeah. Terrible. They do show the tiny house where they believe he was born. It's still standing. It's still there. That's amazing to me. And I hope it's a historical kind of place. Absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. But as far as Stephen knew, Robert was essentially pushed from one house to another. They moved from Memphis to the Delta to Arkansas. Never really had a stable environment. Never had a father figure who accepted him. They say his mother eventually remarried. Now, that makes it sound like she didn't actually marry Robert's father. I'm not sure how that worked. I, no judgment. You do what you got to do. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So his new stepfather's a sharecropper. And of course he wants Robert to come out and help. And Robert's like, that looks like really shitty work. I'd rather not do that. Thank you. I like this, this point. Stephen's talking about, look, he wanted to play the guitar and he couldn't be out there fucking up his long ass fingers <laughs> right. with the field work and whatnot. The money so makers. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yes it did look like a lot of really hard work steven said oh my god yeah he said it's a race we didn't have much to choose from as far as work goes it was the field or nothing yeah how fucking horrible look you're free you're no longer enslaved oh by the way you're still gonna be the same shitty work and getting paid nothing it's totally different though yeah it's um it's not it's it's taken a long time right i mean it's we're not even there yet no but. I do have to talk about my best friend, a guy named Harmonica. That was his nickname throughout this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And he was probably my favorite. <laughs> so he's talking about Robert actually was out playing for the people who were working the fields. And, you know, when he's doing that, he's able to make a nickel or a dime here and there. And while that's fine, it's not really cutting it for him. <laughs> so right. He's got bigger aspirations for that kind of stuff. Another amazing human being, Taj Mahal. So good. So good. I mean, they're so great. And all of these people have a guitar and they're playing. Like, yep. there's little snippets of little songs. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Taj Mahal is also a musician. Talking about the spot, really, that everybody wanted to play in this instance was Dockery's Plantation. Or it says Dockery's Farm on the sign that they put on the... On the screen because I'm like I feel like a plantation's like a dirty word yeah but that's what he said versus what was on the sign mm -hmm. so while the people who are out there working they didn't have any radios they didn't have any music throughout the week on the weekends the mu musicians would come and play for the people who were essentially still in bondage like you mentioned before mm -hmm. and really it was powerful because the music was able to elevate the player and the listener so I think who among us hasn't had a slightly better time at work because you were listening to sweet, sweet jams, you know? So absolutely. I told a coworker the other day, mm -hmm. I'm like, you don't listen to anything. And he's like, no. <laughs> and I'm like, you're a psychopath. How do you sit here and not listen to anything all day? As long as yeah. I know that going into this situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What is interesting is he also made a comment that most church folks would say the blues came from church but they didn't. It came from the field and the best blues music came from the Mississippi fields. But what's interesting about that statement is because we said two seconds previously that the church considered the blues the devil's music. But so now they're removed enough from it and they're like, well, it wasn't so bad compared to this Satan's rock and roll that this we can claim is ours. 
How did that work? Rebranding? I mean, I think we all want to get on the bandwagon from time to time. So mm. that's what I understand. Gotcha. Yeah. He realized, Robert Johnson realized that more money could be made in the city because that's where the money is, right? Sharecroppers don't have any money. So these musicians would travel by bus, train, walking to perform anywhere they could. They would start on the sidewalks and then hopefully the juke joints would hear them and kind of invite them to play at the juke joints. One of the things I didn't really think about that much was how dangerous it would have been to be a black man traveling that way throughout the South. Mm -hmm. And Lewis still a lot of huffing. Lewis agrees. <laughs> Absolutely dangerous. Okay. He cannot believe that that's how bad it was. Indeed. Again, it's something you don't think about until someone tells you. And you're like, oh, yeah, that would have been horrible. Yeah, extremely scary. Mm -hmm. And I think that you can hear that in some of the music that they play. You know, it's kind of reflective of the times. I also found it really funny that if you go into the city as a musician and you're playing on the street corners, you better have a deep bench of stuff from which to pull. Like your archives have got to be amazing. You have to play some fucking polka. You better have some <laughs> pop tunes. You know what I mean? Some like country you under your belt. Yeah, yep. that's what I'm talking about. So it's just really funny to think about, like, you can't play just what you want to hear. You have to play what the people want to hear and, you know, throw you a little bit of something in your case or whatnot. Mm -hmm. But um, I thought that was really funny. But yeah, to get uh, the invitation to come into the juke joint, because the the owners of these places would kind of walk around. They'd hear about somebody that was popular, right? And go and invite them to come and play. Mm hmm Let's talk a little bit about what the juke joint was. So it's an establishment. It's in the city limits and they allow black patrons, which isn't, you know, this is the time that we're talking about is segregated and mm -hmm. not everybody is welcome everywhere. So this is a place where people can gamble. They can drink. They can dance, sing. shake your tail feather, whatnot. Yeah, exactly. It's a house of ill repute, if you will. <laughs> it does sound like a house of ill repute. <laughs> Yeah, it was a safe place in theory, but I think there were probably, I'm sure bad things happened there too. But you would think it would be safe to go there as a black person surrounded by your community and enjoy yourself, right? Well, maybe once you got there, it was fine. But like getting there and leaving sounded like could have been problematic. Yes. <laughs> Although they had the greatest pictures, again, of the, the time period dress and all that kind of stuff and people having a good time. It was really cool to see that. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. So they talk about how Mississippi was apparently just the worst place to be if you were black. And how even in other states, the like owners of the farms would tell them, oh, if you don't behave, we're going to send you to Mississippi. And they're like, oh, shit, yo, that was that was a threat. And you could be lynched or killed on a whim. I never will understand that. Right. There were more lynchings. Lynchings on a whim mm -hmm. is what I wrote down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really, really frightening to think about that. So you have that against you. And then you have the church against you because you are playing the devil's music. You're competing with God at this point. That's, you're never going to win. Well, I thought it, it was funny. At this point, Harmonica comes back because, you know, I love him. And um, he's talking about, look, the Rev is not making any money off the blues. Mm -hmm. So he's turning the people against the blues. And who is it that's in the pews? listening to these stories the wives the women folk the ladies mm -hmm. yeah and so when they go home i assume to their hungover men who were out partying the night before they're kind of starting to lay into them a little bit about being out and uh mm -hmm. you know 
catting around or whatever they were doing. So horrible men. Indeed. Indeed. So legend goes that when Robert was 18, he fell in love with a 15 year old named Virginia Travis. They lied about their ages and got married. I just have to keep in mind the time frame. We try to keep that in mind. We don't punish people for our standards now. Right. 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 Her family, however, was very religious. So Robert made a pledge to Virginia that he would give up playing music and become a farmhand. And I thought, God damn, she must've been real hot because we know he didn't <laughs> want to do that. So. Right. Well, I mean, I think too, sometimes when you're working on your dream and it's coming hard, you know, maybe there's something that calls you and you're like, maybe I should give it up. Maybe mm-hmm. I can give it up. I mean, it sounds like it's not just a straight shot to get to fame from doing what he's doing. So I'm sure that there were, times along the way that he thought about not doing it. I think this is probably one of those times. So, you know, he, he did give up. He was successful for the major majority of her pregnancy. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, so at eight and a half months, she travels to see her grandma to give birth with her family. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was weird, but maybe I'm not schooled on what was common at the time. It just seems weird to travel when you're that far along. Well, yeah, it depends on how you're traveling and how far. We don't know how far it was. Yeah. But also, is that where the midwife is? Is that where you I know mean, that could you're be. safe? Yeah. If you're, yeah. If you're in Maybe a, there was no help. Right. If you're in a community where you're not sure where people are versus where you came from. I like that Robert was like, take, I'm going to take advantage of this little ladies out of the house. I'm going to pick up that guitar and I'm going to play my way up to her. I say up. I don't right. know what direction he was going. <laughs> he was traveling to see her and stopping along the way to play the guitar along the way. Right. Town, town to town. Mm-hmm. How'd that work out for him? Well, when he breezed into wherever the grandma lived, um, tragically, Virginia had passed away during birth and the baby had passed also mm-hmm. and they had already been buried by the time he got there. So he missed out and the family was also pissed because they blamed him mm-hmm. for this tragedy because he was out playing that devil music because somehow the way that it's told in the documentary, he walks into their house with his guitar and I was like, Read the room, my dude. Right. Like, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not doing flaunt that. that shit when you said you were stopping. <laughs> yeah. Right. Maybe just leave it outside. There's probably a tree you could have stashed it under. <laughs> I don't know. Right. My, this might be my favorite line of the entire documentary. Someone said, according to scholars, it was after that that Robert's life really seemed to change considerably. And I'm like, you fucking think? Like, at a major <laughs> life event like that might make a difference in someone's life? I'm not sure. Really? Right. The scholar from the Obvious Institute. <laughs> right. Thank you. Jesus. Well, he dedicated his life to that devil's music. So, there we are. He's got nothing holding him back now. No. The little mm-hmm. lady's not there anymore. So, in July of 1930, Sunhouse, who was a musician, a blues musician, well-known, um, moves to Robinsonville. And he's older than Robert. And we do have some footage of him talking about Robert. Mm-hmm. And it's hilarious to me. He would talk about Robert would follow them around. And every time they take a break, he tried to pick up the guitars and people would be complaining because he was just noising at them. I didn't know you could verb that word, but there we are. He was noising at them. 
mm-hmm. and I that cracks me up. Yeah, so he was with a guy named Willie Brown, and they were playing the juke joints, and when they would take a break, that's when Robert would swoop in, <laughs> and I'm like, do you grab someone else's instrument? I feel like that's sort of a no-no. I would think so. That's right. It's a no-go there, but... Mm-hmm. Apparently, Robert was like, well, I'll show you. And then he left. He left the Delta and disappeared. And they say nobody knows where he went for about a year. And then about a year and a half later, Son and Willie Brown were playing a juke joint in Banks, Mississippi. In the door comes one Robert Johnson carrying a guitar. Yeah, so he scored his own guitar. I mean... He had one if he carried it into Virginia's house. I'm just saying. That's what I said, too. I was like, just, okay. Yeah. Legend. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I like how Sun made a joke. He's like, oh, he's going to be up here noising people to death. That is my new favorite verb, by the way. And uh, Robert's like, listen, just give me a try. Let me give it a go. You know he was cool as fuck, too, doing that, right? Like, yeah. he had all the confidence in the world. Yeah. Cigarette just hanging out of his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> like just just on the bottom lip. Damn. Just by spit alone. Yeah. yeah. Just stuck there. Fuck yeah. <laughs> he had seven strings on a six-string guitar. Mm-hmm. And Sun said, when that boy started playing, he was gone. It was gone. Everyone's mouth was open. It was just the most amazing things they'd ever heard. Right. Like... They didn't even know what he was doing. Mm -hmm. That's the part that cracked me up. I'm like, not only is he amazing, he's, somebody calls him an impresario, which I looked up and I'm like, I don't think that really is applicable because that's like a merchant or something. (laughs) And I'm like, but it sounds, it's a great word. And I was like, fuck, what does that mean? Right. But yeah, a prodigy really is sort of the context that they hand to you in this, that he just came back and it was just miraculous. Yeah. Yeah, and people yeah. were like, how did he get so good so fast? He must have been hanging out at the crossroads. And this is kind of where that myth starts. There's no other way yeah. that he could have gotten that good yeah. that fast. Mm-hmm. So the myth goes, Robert went to the crossroads. He was supposed to have gotten down on his knees and handed his guitar to the devil. And the devil was supposed to have tuned the guitar. But before he gave the guitar back, the devil said, once you receive this guitar, your soul is mine. Do you want it? Of course, he's like, heels, yeah, and he took it, and that's how he sold his soul. Do you find it kind of funny that the devil tunes his guitar? Like, that seems practical for the devil. It's not like <laughs> lightning hit it or, um, you know, it just descended, like, ascended from the underworld or something like. a special guitar. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, made out of bones or something. Like, Do you think that's the only reason why Robert couldn't play well is because it wasn't tuned properly? Fucking <laughs> <laughs> tuned. Yeah. <laughs> We think you're doing all right, but it sounds horrible. What's going on? That's right. <laughs> it's that seventh string. You put that seventh string on it, then it all comes together. Yeah, absolutely. If you listen to some of the lyrics, it sounds like he plays into this myth quite a bit, right? Um, about Talks about walking with the devil and meeting him and things like that. It's it's pretty interesting. But again, I think he if he knows anything about marketing... You know what I mean? Like, why not? Lean into it. Why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We talked to Yvonne Sheru. She's a professor of religion in Swarthmore College. Swarthmore College? I'm not sure how you pronounce that. She said the story of Johnson selling his soul is really reflecting on the tradition in African-American folklore called hoodoo. 
which we've talked about previously in other documentaries. The African-American styles of magic and hoodoo has these stories of people going down to the crossroad and meeting up with an entity who offers some sort of insight or knowledge. And she says it's seen as a way of gaining control in a world suffused with violence and limited options. Sure. I get it. It's good to think that there, there is something out there that would be better. Yeah. There's a professor, his name is Carlos, and he also mentions that we also have to keep in mind that we're one generation removed from slavery. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of those kinds of lyrics that show up alongside the hoodoo stuff. And it's stuff like, um, there's one where he talks about a nation's bag, which is a hoodoo reference, Mm -hmm. um, kind of a woman's sexual power is sort of what the gist of it is. Mm -hmm. And then there's another lyric that he talks about hot powder, which is a reference to kind of fleeing bloodhounds and a lynch mob. Mm -hmm. So I thought how, I don't know, like that's very visceral to me. Like both of those are like, you know what I mean? It's kind of interesting to think about that. I have a question about the crossroads. Is there one crossroads? Is it any crossroads? Like what kind of crossroads? Because they, they show a specific crossroads Mm -hmm. in here. They do. I would like to think it's not just any, because I would think you could accidentally do something horrible. Yeah. I mean, how does the devil monitor all the crossroads? There's a lot of crossroads. For like souls. How do roundabouts fare? If everything goes (laughs) to roundabout, does that count? such children i'm sorry this is very poignant but i'm just like if i need to go to the crossroads i need to know which one where do i go yeah is it just in the south is it a dirt crossroads could it be like a city crossroads like i feel like that's too public but i feel like if you needed it the knowledge would come to you okay all right so i just need to ask the universe got it okay Mm -hmm. or try all the crossroads and eventually one will work okay i'm I'm going to be gone for a little while, so. Okay. <laughs> Keb comes on and, and makes a comment. He says, I don't know where the Crossroads stories came from, but I believe in my core that even if Robert Johnson actually met the devil, that it's a metaphor, more of a wake-up call for a person to go ahead and become who they are. All right. I can dig it. I can dig the metaphor. Yeah, it's kind of a different take on the whole thing, right? Because some people make it sound like he was forced into this because of life circumstances. Keb seems to kind of be coming across with a more powerful thought of like taking your destiny in your own hands. Mm -hmm. So everybody's got like a little different spin on this. I like that we're now going to move into option B territory. Right. So Stephen, the grandson, he tells a story. He says... My grandfather left the Delta and came back to his birth town. He was looking for Noah Johnson, his biological father. In searching for Noah, he found his mentor, Ike Zimmerman. And Ike was known throughout Mississippi as being like the best guitarist there was. He was the man. So the story has it that Ike and Robert used to go to the cemetery across Mike's home and they would practice there. Every day, every night, just nonstop. The nighttime playing really cracks me up mm-hmm. because I'm like, do you not have to see after a while? Like you, the, you know what I mean? I did like that. Ike was like, don't worry about uh, no complaints in the cemetery. <laughs> like, you jokes are yeah, Ike. Yeah, you can play as you. badly as you want. Yep. Mm-hmm. But Ike always said that the only way to learn to play the blues was to sit on a gravestone at midnight in a cemetery. And then the haints, which is a Southern word for ghost or spirits, 
would come out and they would teach you to play the blues. So it was Ike and the spirits that taught him, not the devil. Still got that supernatural bit, right? Because we can't just accept that somebody can play awesome. And I'm not, you know, I like a little bit of mystery, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you accept the graveyard playing again, I think that furthers this connection mm-hmm. that he's got, you know, a little bit of, uh, yeah, supernatural backing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So apparently if, if he saw anyone watching him while he played, he would either stop playing entirely or he would <laughs> he would turn around and continue to play, much like uh, Jim Morrison. He didn't like to look at the audience, so... Yeah, I don't know that he really had anything to worry about because evidently he had the world's biggest hands and he was able Longest to like fingers ever, yes. wrap them all around the neck of that guitar to do whatever he wanted to do. All completely independent of one another. Apparently each playing something different <laughs> is what it sounds like. Because he made it sound like several people were playing and it was just him. Right. My best friend Keith Richards comes on here and he <laughs> talks about... <laughs> Thank God for subtitles is all I got to say. Oh, yeah. I'm like, to be in your 70s and still rocking some eyeliner just for an interview is (laughs) so bitchin'. But yeah, nobody had that sound, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a guy named Elijah Wald, who's a music historian, and he kind of picks through a couple things to demonstrate. Like, he said, these riffs are commonplace now, but at the time, it was revolutionary. Nobody played like this. And so it's been reverse engineered for 50 years or whatever it is almost 100 years now I guess mm-hmm. but yeah we've heard this style because this is what electric blues and jazz and eventually rock and roll were built on kind of variations of the style mm-hmm. so people eventually figured it out but Robert was the one who made it so mm-hmm. yeah he recorded 29 songs for the American Record Company and is popularly in popularity in the Delta blew up. So he was pretty famous then, but he still wanted a family. So he meets Virgie Kane and she becomes pregnant. They say Virgie was a schoolgirl, and that gives me a little bit of an issue, but again, different times. Right. Bit of a type. Yeah. Yeah. Virginia and Virgie. Like, yeah, even that is weird to me. So yeah. Like, he wasn't that old when this happened either. He was 18 with Virginia, and this is Mm -hmm. literally, like, a couple years later. Robert made repeated attempts to get Virgie Virgie to come away with him, but she also came from a strict religious family, and they were like, hell no, you're not going with this boy that plays the devil's music. It's not going to happen. And they do have footage of Claude Johnson, who was Robert's son, Stephen's father, And he talks about how he didn't have a relationship with his father. He only really saw him twice. And the second time, it's not like he met him. He remembers him when Claude was almost seven. And he comes to the grandparents' house where Claude is living. And he wants to see his son. Of course, they're like, no, the grandfather goes out to meet him. He's like, you can't see him. And so he gives them money. Like, here, this is for my child. So he's trying to do the right thing. Right. So. Yeah, which is just heartbreaking. I mean, here's a situation where both sides of this think that they're doing the right thing by the kid. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, 
if Robert grew up and didn't have a great relationship with the men in his life, you know, you want to think that he's offering to do better. Right. But it's sort of unable yeah. to do so for, you know, circumstances outside his control. Sure. And this is what really made me think of how much happened in that very short period of time between like 18 and 21 for him, because if he's 18, when he meets and marries Virginia and he died at 27 and this cat said he was almost seven when he saw his dad the second time he would have had him when he was like 2021. 20, so that's, you know, a two or three year period where he gets married, has a wife and kid, loses a wife and kid, you know, goes, sells a soul to the devil, comes back as an amazing musician. Now he has another kid. It, that's a, that's a lot in a couple of years when you think about it. Yeah, I guess I hadn't mathed it out, but um, I'm glad that you're here to bring, you know, accuracy <laughs> to our reporting on something that everybody else has already talked about. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so there's lots of tragedy in his life. I think that kind of, again, forces him, quotey fingers, to the bottle and to the uh, women. And he really buys into or kind of perpetuates this devil association. Like, think about 29 recorded songs. And that's all it took to, like, leave this level of a mark on mm -hmm. everything. It's crazy. Yeah. I like how they're... They were like, he was a hard drinking, he was womanizing, he was blaspheming, he was all... I mean, he really went all in. <laughs> yes. That's yes, right. he did. He did. So, here's what happened, though, because eventually this lifestyle came to bite him in the ass, right? It's 1938. Robert had apparently taken up with the wife of one of the people who worked at the Three Forks Juke Joint. And apparently he let his arrogance go a bit too far. He was disrespecting the woman's husband. He then orders a bottle of whiskey. When it comes to him, someone else noticed the seal is broken and they try to push out of hands, out of his hands and it falls. But he's like, dude, you never drink from an open bottle. And the dude, Robert's like, you never slap a $7 bottle out of my hand. Um, mm -hmm. So he continues to pick up the bottle and he drinks from it. It happened to have poison in it. And apparently a really bad kind because it didn't kill him immediately. It took like two days of him being in excruciating pain and agony before he died. Right. Bit of a rough death here. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's horrible. Yeah. 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 That's not great. And no one knows who did it. Some say the lady did it. Some say the ladies, they say boyfriend, but they earlier they said husband. So partner of some sort. Um, some say the houseman did it. All they could say was that he was poisoned. And no one was charged with the death either. Like they went and talked to them. The police went and talked to these people and they were like, okay, dude, that sucks. I don't know. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of outrage about it either because there was sort of this prevalent feeling that he deserved it. He brought it on himself. Mm -hmm. You know, the people in the church weren't going to argue because I think this is, they were like, look, see, we told you, see, see. Mm -hmm. The bill so, came due, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we meet John Hammond, who's a musician, but also John Hammond's son. Why? That's just, let's not name people after ourselves, guys. Let's not. Also, not the John Hammond of Jurassic Park fame. There's a John Hammond in Jurassic Park? 
Yeah. Oh, the, he's the yeah. owner of the party. Right? Attenborough. Yeah. Yeah. That does. Um, but I was just like, John Hammond, why is that? Oh, Jurassic Park. And then who's, who's the actor from Mad Men? Is that not John Hammond as well? That's John Ham. <laughs> Close enough. They're all the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of ham, a lot of ham, and also a lot of ham right here because I forced that joke. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> So John's father, John, told him that in 19... Senior. Yes. That in 1938, he put on a concert at Carnegie Hall in New York called Spirituals and Swing. If you guys don't know, Senior John Hammond is known for being part of, like, recording and producing at the Columbia Music. But one of the artists he was trying to find was Robert Johnson. He wanted to put him on the show. He believed that people should understand where this jazz that they love, this music that they love, where it came from and the deep roots of where it came from. And I love that. So he sent people down to Mississippi to find him only to find out he had died like six months previously, which really sucks. So what he did instead is as the house lights came on in Carnegie, there was like a light just illuminating a a Victrola, if you will, a record player. Love that. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And John Hammond walked out and played Robert's music and people loved it. Like the people in the audience absolutely loved it. Like, of course, after he died, of course. They say after the event, there was a brief flurry of interest in Robert Johnson, but most of the public remained unaware of him. It's not like he was on the radio or anything like that. And then it was several years later when the blues player Muddy Waters went to Chicago that he started kind of becoming the new blue sound and he was bringing Robert Johnson into it. Mm-hmm. Right. A lot of influence there. Right. Mm-hmm. So in the 1950s, there was a kind of a craze, like a blues craze. Think old 78s that people were finding in little record stores everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of, to me, I was like, like hipsters, like, hipsters would find these yes. um, I think that's kind of what it was and then <laughs> that caught in popularity and so again it kind of stirred the pot and got everybody's interest up mm-hmm. for Robert Johnson they do release this is I believe John Hammond Sr. releases King of the Delta Blues so there is more access to optics yeah yeah to yeah. what to what Robert Johnson mm-hmm. contributed and then John Hamm is also credited for playing Robert Johnson for one Bob Dylan. Don't know you've heard of him. Just a small um, little player in the game. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Just maybe slightly influential. No one knows. Hardly know him. Mm-hmm. Right. And I like how we said, had he not heard Johnson when he did, there were a lot of songs that would never have happened. Right. Bonnie Ray talks about getting the record and teaching herself how to play these songs because she was just so amazed by how they sounded. So she taught herself. I don't know if you know of a little singer named Bonnie Ray, but she just recently won a Grammy. Just saying. She's got epic hair. Let's just talk about that. She looks phenomenal for her age. She oh really does. my God, girl. Yeah, she really does. There's a guy named Zeke who talks about how Robert Johnson influenced a lot of British wave of blues kind of think Led Zeppelin too. You know, lemon song. I don't know. The lemon song. Maybe a little something. <laughs> right? Fucking <laughs> yeah. Robert Plant. Oh, Yeah. Prime Robert Plant. He was so pretty. Eric Clapton. I'm not going to expound a lot on that because no. he's an anti-vaxxer and it's not going to fall off my list of 
also quite people that I like. racist. Did he know Robert was black? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know that. He didn't need any help being terrible. I'm pretty sure so, I've read things that were not so good about uh, him, but maybe not. And you can correct me. Yeah. Robert Johnson was also the first of the 27 Club. So the selling your soul to the devil is kind of the basis for the 27 Club, that these musicians that have died so young, that were so famous and had so much talent and then died so young, it's people want to believe that there's a reason why they were had so much talent. Some of these singers and artists, as you know, are Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix. The list is very long, sadly. However, not all the greats died. Keith somehow managed to get through, which is really something. I think he'll live forever. As he's sitting there smoking a cigarette, he's like, well, I don't know, I made it. And I'm like, you are never going to die, sir. I mean, he's going to be preserved, yeah. right? Like, just mummified from the inside out. Oh, my God. Oh, God, I love Keith Richards. Yeah. So. But, yeah, they they talk about the myth is so powerful because people want to feel like they have a reason why things happen. Right. It, it, what, you want things to make sense and not just be arbitrary. And these poor people died so young or whatever. It just you want to be able to understand. But I like how I think it was Stephen who said at some point in everyone's life, we come to a crossroads and we all have to choose how much we can sacrifice in order to achieve greatness. I'm telling you right now, very little. I'm not sacrificing much <laughs> at all. But like sacrificing naps because I'm out like. Yeah, it would have yeah. to be something small. Like, listen, you can never paint your nails again you'll just have plain nails forever and i'm like well okay i can give that up that not for you i know that's a tough one but for me i know that is mm -hmm. yeah but i mean we each have to make our own choice so <laughs> correct yeah this is a really lovely documentary i really enjoyed it i always like a little bit of uh, mythology and things so that was really fun I like that it's such a famous story that most people, if you've listened to any music, blues, jazz, rock and roll, anything, have heard the story, maybe in passing and didn't really understand it, but heard the story of Robert Johnson. And I like that this gave some background to, well, yeah, he could have sold a soul or it could be that he practiced really hard every day for a year and a half and he got really good. That's not as, yeah. Yeah. Not as fun of a tale to tell, but it's probably a bit more realistic. And also he had freakishly long fingers so right but people want to believe that they want to believe that to achieve that level of greatness to really come up with something different and unique mm -hmm. it's not just like just a little divine spark that we all probably possess right, right. it's got to be something crazy so mm -hmm. maybe his fingers yeah. were shorter before and then they became longer and that's Ooh. what people noticed yeah so when he handed that guitar back it came with longer fingers yes okay all right <laughs> That's my version. Yeah. I'm going to stick with that. Mm -hmm. All right. But yes, it was a great story. They told it well. I liked all the musicians and everyone who talked in it. It was just, it's just really well done. It's kind of a sad story. It was though. cool. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of tragedy, but a lot of good art comes out of tragedy. So the, again, that's not that surprising to me. It was a hard time, you know, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. Well, all right. On that note, what are we going to do next week, Erin? Well, we're moving into some different territory. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to go with the history of sweary words. Mm -hmm. This is on Netflix. This is six episodes, all about 20 minutes each, done in 2021. And it's about swear words, which I think is probably good for us. Listen, I love, I can get behind the etymology of all of these words. I cannot wait. Yeah. Cannot wait. Yeah. I mean, 
I've seen uh, my big fat Greek wedding, so I think they all go back to Greek. That's what I, I assume. Assuming, yeah, at this point, absolutely yeah. correct. <laughs> okay, so we'll ask you guys to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Go Doc Yourself. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, guys. I think I'll play some Robert Johnson to play us out. Love that. Yeah. So enjoy one Robert Johnson, and we'll talk to you next Indeed. week. Later. Bye.